Welcome to the Simple Church Podcast, where we're committed to helping you know God, find freedom, discover your purpose, and make a difference. Let's get to today's message. In week three of this series called Dang James, and here's what it's all about. James is a book in your Bible. It was actually a letter written by a guy named James, okay? And uh, James uh, is an important guy. He's one of the original pastors uh, there in Jerusalem where Christianity started. Christians were named after, uh, the, they were people that followed Jesus the Christ, and so they named them Christians. Uh, that was a very Roman thing to do, and, and so they called him the Christians, and it started there in Jerusalem, and James was one of the, the OG pastors. He, uh, he, he was there, but that's not the most important thing about James. The most important thing about James was that he was the brother of Jesus, half-brother. He grew up with Jesus. He knew him. And this is why I really believe that James was so convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, and why he speaks so convinced of that information because he spent his whole life knowing Jesus. He knew him as a kid. He knew him as a teenager. And he knew that he was tempted but never, ever sinned. He knew that about Jesus. He knew him before he stepped into ministry. He knew him on the job. He knew him in community. He knew him at church. He knew him in every single environment, private and public times. And if James was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah, I think I can be too. Because if your brother thinks you're the Messiah, yo, that's the real deal, right? Because they know you best. And it's why James speaks so confidently. And it's, I think, this confidence that lends to the way he talks to us. And the way he talks to us is just very direct. He's just matter of fact because that's how it feels to him. It's very matter of fact that God's plan is good. We should want it. Oh, and by the way, his plan is his son, Jesus, which happened to be his brother. End of story. James speaks so direct to us that, that as we're listening to him, I kind of get a sense. It's like, I hear what you're saying, James, but it also makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Anybody else feel that? And as a result, it has us saying... Right, if it's your first time here, we're going to do that together. A lot of times churches are doing amens and hallelujahs and you go pass a, nobody's doing that one. But anyway, um, just try it out with us on three. Everybody try dang James. One, two, three. So if you hear something that really just kind of gets to you, you can go dang James, because by the way, I'm also James. I'm James Aaron. Nice to meet you. So let's have fun today and let's get into God's word, because here's what this letter today is about. Uh, it, it is written to a church that was scattered. They're going through persecution. And they all used to gather together in large groups, but now that the religious leaders have turned on them, they're persecuting them. They're, they're hauling them off into jail. Uh, they are beating them, and some of them are even dying as a result. And so people are scared, and they're scattered, and now they're gathering privately in much smaller groups. And James has written this letter to them in the middle of it because he understands the power of unity. And he understands they're already scattered and he knows that the enemy's ploy, his tactics at this point, are to try to get them to disband even further, to try to get them to stop meeting altogether. Because if he can get them separated, if he can cause disunity, then this thing known as Christianity will fizzle out. And so the enemy is trying everything he can to disrupt this church through persecution. But James understands the power of unity and being together, and he understands that they lack it, and so he's trying to talk to them. 
And he starts off, the first message we did was on trials and temptations because, man, they were going through a trial, and as a result of being uncomfortable, he knows that temptation was going to come along with it. And that was the first week that we, that we go, got into this message. We talked about trials and temptations, and how to make it through it was to stand upon God's word, and that was week two. We, last week, we talked about the authoritativeness of God's word. Is it the rock that you will stand on, that when all else speaks to you in your life, when the world tries to tell you otherwise, will you stand on the foundation of God's word? Do you really believe it's God's word, and if it's God's word, are you responding to it accordingly? That was last week's message, and James is like, hey, this is a, this is a building letter, right? He's, he's letting them know, hey, I know you're scattered, and I understand the reason. I also understand that, 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 man, in the midst of your trials, you can count it all joy, and when temptations come along, you can stand on God's word, because that's what Jesus did when the devil tempted him. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written, and that we can stand on that thing. It's a good thing for us in the midst of our storms, but today... What James wants to do is go on and talk about how the enemy is going to try to disrupt their unity. That he's going to try to further cause them to separate. And he sends these little instigators to break them up even more. That's what the enemy's work is. And throughout the whole book, James is calling out these instigators of togetherness and unity. Because he understands that togetherness and unity are powerful. He calls out gossip. He calls out pride and ego. He calls out speaking death instead of life, which, by the way, these may seem like very, very simple things in the grand scheme of the sins in this world. They're little things that we tend to dismiss, but like the great poet Gavin Rosdale said, it is the little things that kill. That hit a very, very small group of people. Dang, James. We cannot dismiss the little things. We can't. Too many little things are what destroy everything. Little roots of bitterness trouble the heart. Little bit of giving in to sinful desires leads to abandonment of our faith. Little false doctrine leads to heresy. A a little bit of ill temper leads to hatred, hatred, abuse, and murder. A little covetousness leads to stealing. A little prayerlessness. What leads to spiritual blindness. And James is concerned over the little things that are disrupting the unity of this group and their togetherness. He's concerned. Jesus prayed in John 18. He said, God, let unity be a sign that these guys love me. Let it be a witness for them and for everybody else. Unity. It's something that Jesus valued. He said, this isn't just for you to experience. Yes, there's power and unity for you to experience, but it's for the world's benefit around you. And the next thing out of James's mouth is to address one of these instigators to the unity. He's calling out, hey, this is a problem. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read this whole selection. It's James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to break it down. So here's today's instigator. Verse 1, he says, my brothers and sisters... Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. There's our topic for today. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, 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 looky here, Linda, my dear brothers and sisters, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Mm. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Forever keeps the law, the whole law, and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder you become a lawbreaker so speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful mercy triumphs over judgment dang james favoritism james points out ruins togetherness and unity and we have a responsibility and my job today is to help us uproot that favoritism that we have, to challenge us to search ourselves and see if there is any favoritism in us, any discrimination within us, because it is disruptive. So what is favoritism? Favoritism, if you're taking notes, is giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. Favoritism is something that we see all across our world. We see it at home. We see it at work. In fact, Georgetown did a study on the impact of favoritism and what's going on in our homes and on the job. And it says 70% of mothers admitted to having a favorite child. Pause. I understand that. I've got three brothers on my mom's side. I grew up with these clowns, these jokers, my brothers. I love them. But there was always a tense conversation, intense fellowship, I shall say around who was the favorite in the house. And it was oftentimes that the finger was pointed at me as being the favorite. And I said, no, I'm not the favorite. I'm not worried about such things. The favorite never does. <laughs> and, there's, and there's all these conversations at home, and it goes on for years and years and years. My mom decided to settle it. And she bought, she bought T-shirts that said, I'm the favorite child. And do you know who she gave them to? The other two. Because this guy didn't need it. The favorite always knows. So mothers admitted to having a favorite child. 56% of bosses already have. I don't have like a lesson in that. I just wanted to share that. 56% of bosses already have a favorite in mind before they do their interviews. 75% of people at work feel they have witnessed favoritism. 23% of employers admit to practicing favoritism. Favoritism is a leading cause of employee unhappiness and therefore turnover. And in the home, it can cause to children having detrimental long-term effects. Favoritism is disruptive. It's destructive at home, at work, everywhere. And it's no different. It causes the same problems right here at church. We must must uproot favoritism because there's so much power to be experienced and discover in togetherness and unity. God gave us an example to follow. In fact, God himself lives in unity 
with himself. This is a great mystery. I'm going to try to explain it as simply as I possibly can, but it's this thing called the Godhead, that our God exists in three manifestations, though he is one. You say, Aaron, that math doesn't make sense, because one plus one is three. How do you get one out of that? Well, because it's not one plus one. It's more one times one times one equals one. That they operate in unity, though they have three different manifestations. God is one. We have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Spirit. God operates together in unity. And he's given us this picture. We see it especially in the garden that Jesus in his humanity was like, God, I know, or Father, I know you sent me here to die for these people, but we can find another way. But also, not my will, but yours be done. That's unity. Submitting a will. He showed he had a preference. I don't want to do this, but I'll do it if you tell me. This is what you want. That's unity, and that's powerful. The enemy, our enemy, hates unity. He hates our togetherness. Why? Because he saw it in heaven. He was there and he experienced it long before he was, he was what we picture as the, the red guy with horns and a pitchfork, which he's not, by the way. He, he's actually an angel of light. He never appears in a scary form. But he was in heaven and he saw everybody in unison bow together. He saw everybody in unison declare, holy, holy, holy. And in his pride and his ego, he wanted that glory, the same glory that all of heaven gave to the Father. He wanted for himself. And so he rebelled. And as a result, he was kicked out of heaven, and he could no longer experience that power of togetherness and glory anymore. And he, as a result, doesn't want you to experience it either. He knows we're stronger together in unity, and he knows what Paul said to be true in Ephesians 4. He said, we, you were all called to travel on the same road in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think is, and do is permeated with oneness. Guys, that's God's plan for us. Oneness. And it's powerful. And James understands the enemy's plan. He understands the power of unity, and he understands how to lose it. He understands how fragile it is. That the little things that we leave unchecked in our lives can absolutely 100% disrupt unity. And he's waving a flag of warning. He's letting us know. And he's waving it about favoritism. He's being really clear today. And in this passage, he's letting us know what unity looks like so we, and so we can feel it. He said, I want you to feel this and I want you to see this here. Because if we feel it and if we see what favoritism looks like, then, then and only then we can become aware of how to change it. And so he helps us to see it. He helps us to feel it. Because it's important we understand that Romans 2.11 tells us God doesn't show favoritism. That's just not what he does. And there's nothing clearer than that in Scripture. God doesn't show favoritism. I've got three kids. And coming from a household where this tension was about the favorites, I understand it. I understand it. And so I always talk to my kids, and I would tell them, you're my favorite Trent David DeLong in the whole world. Dad, am I your favorite? Yeah, you're my favorite Trent David. You're my favorite Tyler James. You're my favorite Kasiah Elise in the whole world. Because they were. It's really funny. The other day, my daughter went to Kentucky, and uh, she was going with a friend down to visit family that we have down there. And I I kissed her, and I hugged her, because I was headed out for the day, and she was going to take off. And then as I'm walking away, I text her. uh, I Apple paid her uh, some money. 
just to bless her and say, have, and I said, have fun. And apparently after I left, she went to my wife and said, you see what dad did? It pays to be the favorite. <laughs> now what she doesn't know, and if she listens to this message, she'll find out that two weeks prior to, I'd done the same thing for both of her brothers. <laughs> pays to be the favorite, huh? They're all my favorite kids. And that's how God is with us, guys. I hate to burst your bubble if you came in here today feeling like you were God's favorite. He has no favorites. You're all his favorite. Every single one of you are his favorite. He does not show favoritism at all. And I'm going to say this to kind of get in your business a little bit. He doesn't show favoritism to anybody. Everybody's their favorite, even the ones you don't think deserve it. Uh Uh-oh. Because I would wager that some of y'all are like, well, there's some people that don't belong in this room. Maybe the, the homeless or the divorcee or the, the adulterer or the abuser or the addict or the promiscuous or the lost. No, 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 no. They don't belong here. But God says, those are my kids. Them's my kids. And they belong. And he loves them just the same as your lying, gossiping, egocentric self. <laughs> we are all his favorite. Every single one of us are. Favoritism is dangerous. It tears families apart. And maybe that's something you experienced growing up, is that you were the kid that was not the favorite. And you felt like you were on the outside. You felt like you were less than. And God never wants you to feel less than. In fact, he loves you so much. He values you so much that he sent his son to die for you. You are worthy. You have value you cannot understand until you begin to see yourself as God sees you. God shows no favoritism and neither should we. And so James is about to go there and he wants to to show us what favoritism sounds like and looks like. And so he says in verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. All that, by the way, was just my warm up. Here we go. James 2, 1. Here's what he shows us what it looks like. He says, favoritism looks like this. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to that guy, hey, come sit in the front row. And then to the poor guy, you say, hey, just sit on the floor or sit in the back. Because you've got dirty clothes on. Because you don't smell like the rest of us. You don't look like the rest of us. James is letting you know, hey, favoritism, it affects what you see. It affects what you see. So what do you see when you look around the room today? What do you see when you look around your life? Do you see favorites. Because if you do, understand that favoritism gives you faulty vision. Favoritism gives you faulty vision. And James is calling out and he's asking us, take the lenses off of favoritism. I got a couple guys here that are going to help me today. Come on out, guys. There they are. Stay right over here, buddy. And you stay right there on that mark. That's perfect. All right. This is Trent. This is Aiden. This is my son. This is not my son. This is actually Pastor Tim's son. Thank you guys for helping me. Now, the second they walked out here, did you feel the tension in the room? It's palpable. Let me identify you. There are some of you that are here, and you're like, yes. There might be one or two of you that are here. And then there are some of you, like Aiden's parents, that are kind of in the center that don't care. Sports ball, what's that? And they are over there. But there's tension. There's a, there's a tension that you feel because you see something. 
You see a team, you see a color, maybe you see a, a skin color, or maybe you see the way somebody dresses or their accoutrements, you know, whether or not their, their, their wrists are iced out. You see their sarcastic t-shirts and their skinny jeans and their beards and their flannels, and you're like, yes, them is my people. And you make decisions about who belongs and who doesn't (laughs) based on what you see. We've all made those decisions. We've assumed by what they see or by what we see that these are my people and that others are not. We make assumptions about who's for us and about who's against us. We make assumptions about who deserves favor and who does not. I owe. Thank you for that. Maybe we see, begin to see people through the eyes of our upbringings. We begin to see people through the eyes of our experiences. James is calling us to see as God sees. And he uses this rich man versus the poor man as a backdrop. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. Give him a round of applause. They were wonderful. But this assumption, this assumption based on what we see, my friends, is toxic. It's absolutely toxic that, that, that we could assume based on what we see from someone, not, not what we know about their personality, not what, what they know about what's in their hearts, but based on what we see that we can belong. It's toxic. And Jesus didn't have any favorites. You know that? He sat with dignitaries. He sat with religious leaders. He sat with kings. Jesus also sat with prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus did not have favorites. He didn't see them as other. He saw them as his own people. They were all his favorites. And as a follower of Christ, we've got a responsibility to not show favoritism either. But this issue was present in the early church. Peter. Peter was the head of the the church. And Peter had a problem with favoritism. In fact, God called him to a man named Cornelius, a Gentile. That word just means non-Jew. And Peter struggled to go. But when he went, he encountered God's presence there. He went and spoke to them, and what he saw was different. And in Acts 10.34, he said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Now, he walked with Jesus. He saw him sit with all these people. He saw that, they had, that he demonstrated no favoritism. Peter's a little slow, guys. That's another message for another time. If you're a Peter fan, I apologize, but I can prove it to you. He was way slower than the rest of the disciples to get on board, and I'm okay. I I relate with Peter. I'm kind of slow, too. I don't get it as quick as I'd like. But Peter, Peter had a moment, and I want that for all of you. I want that for all of you that you have this moment where you see the favor of God or that all of humanity is God's kids and every single one of them are his favorites. We need a moment, like Peter, where we say, now I realize God doesn't play favorites. We got to see it in ourselves. And if we don't, we got to ask God to show it to us. Now, a few moments ago, I I shared this with you, and and I'm going to ask Pastor Kyle for my props. But we made a decision. You can just lay them right there. Thanks. We made a, a decision a few moments ago by what we were visually drawn to, right? We're going to take the time to do this. 
it'll be returned when I'm done. <laughs> a few moments ago, we were visually drawn to what people were wearing, and we made decisions about them. And the world does that to us. The world wants us to make decisions about what we see. They want us to see people by their background. They want us to see people by their education. They want us to see people by their financial status, their marital status, their social status. They want us to see people and put them in groups based on their, their, their skin color, their gender, their sexuality, their political affiliations, their nationality, the teams that they root for, their likes and their dislikes, the number of followers they have on social media and their accomplishments. See, the world looks at these kind of things and says, well, these are all groups and people that are in the, have done those things or have those things or look that way, they all belong in groups. And if they're in that group, they're not in my group and they live outside of our world. And the world wants us to do that. The world wants us to define our relationship with others based on these things, but God calls us to be different. Because here's the thing about these two shirts, that if you look at them, you look at that label right there, and you look at this label right here, they're different colors, and they have different team names on them, but they're both made by the same manufacturer. The exact same brand. And every single one of us is made by God. We come from the exact same designer. Don't let the world muddle that for you. That the label that's on the inside of your shirt says made in the image of God. That's who you are. And that's who the person is sitting next to you. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter what their experience has been. Doesn't matter their station in life. It does not matter. We all have the same label. And James is appealing to us to stop seeing as the world sees and begin seeing as God sees. Because if we're to deal with the issue of favoritism in our lives, we must change how we see. Because here's who God has always been in 1 Samuel 16. It says, the Lord does not look at, at the things people look at. In other words, God's not looking, out, looking at what you're looking at. He doesn't see how you see. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what do you see today? The external or that tag that says made in the image of God? We got to learn to change how we see. Because if we can do that, if we can change how we, can, how we see, it will change what we say. Because James doesn't just say we see the rich and the poor. He says, because based on what we see, I see that you're rich. I see that you're poor. Now, because of what I see, I now say. I now say something different. I say to the rich guy, you sit here. Uh, and I say to the, to the poor guy, you sit on the floor. I go, the rich guy could probably afford to take me to Chipotle, and the poor guy can't even buy a soft taco at Taco Bell. I'm going to give favor to that guy, to the rich guy. What we see affects what we say. And the enemy, of course, takes advantage of that, guys. We don't realize that what we see and say are creating division. Because favoritism, if it's anything, is a language of exclusion. It's a language of exclusion. Two weeks ago, I was invited to uh, the governor's house. And, uh, and he, wanted, he was inviting pastors to come and talk to him because he's concerned uh, about the election that's coming up and uh, issue one, which is all about women's productive rights and it being written into our Constitution, which would, you know, negate the heartbeat bill and all these other things. And 
things to do with, with abortion. And no matter where you're at on either side of it, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, he's very concerned about it because it's extreme. It's extreme. And that's what he wanted to talk to these pastors about. And so I was invited to go. But then I found out that the invitation finally came because I talked to him on the phone. And they're like, yeah, we'd love for you to come. I'm like, I'm in. I put it on my calendar. And then I got the invitation and found out, oh, there's a dress code. And uh, that dress code is suit and tie. And um, well, I don't have any of those right now. Because we're in transition. We moved, and most of my stuff is in storage, and my suits are in there. Honestly, I couldn't wear them anyway. I'm down 53 pounds, y'all, and I can't put them on. Yeah, and I just, thank you. Stop, but keep it going. But seriously, stop. I got something to do. So I don't have a suit, and I'm like, I'm not going to buy a suit just for this event. I don't wear it professionally. I don't wear it personally. I don't wear them privately. There's no reason to do that. Like, so, because they favored... Listen, because they favored a certain look to even be in the presence of the governor, I excluded myself. I said, sorry, I'm not going to do that. And I was excluded from this event. Until. I experienced a little favor myself because the chief of staff for the governor is the former mayor's wife, and she and I were thick as thieves a few years ago when I was running for city council. And she found out that I wasn't going to come because I wasn't going to wear a suit. And she said, Aaron DeLong, he can come however he wants to. And I stepped into a moment of favor myself. I didn't want to end the story there. I just wanted you to know I stepped into some favor. And then I'm standing there in this room with a bunch of pastors who are all wearing suits looking at me going, is that guy the help? I think he's the gardener. I'm not sure. And, and the chief of sticks, I was, wearing, I was wearing nice jeans and dress boots and a button down. But everybody else was dressed to the nines, and I'm not. And I'm standing in the midst of this place. The chief of staff walks in, walks past everybody, hugs my neck, and says, let's get this meeting started. But hear me, even in that, even though I experienced that moment of favor and I was thankful for that, it excluded everybody else. Favoritism is a language of exclusion. It excludes people. And the enemy wants people left out. He wants them to feel like they don't belong. And favoritism does just that. It creates a divide between us and them. It's exactly what it does. Keeps us divided. Keeps us fighting amongst ourselves. Never able to realize the power of togetherness and unity. He doesn't want that for us. But the Bible tells us that where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. The enemy wants to keep us apart, divided. We have to change how we see so we can then change what we say so that we can experience the power of togetherness. So what do we see? What do we say and what do we do? James tells us in verse 8, he said, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Verse 12, he says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So you want to know how to eliminate this instigator of division? If you want to deal with it, how to overcome favoritism? The answer is simple. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. It's to love deeply and widely, no matter how messy that gets. No matter what they look like no matter what their experience is, no matter the sins they've committed, no matter the sins they're committing, 
Stop seeing people like the world does. Mercy triumphs over judgment. They belong to God, and therefore they belong to us. They belong. We see as God sees, and we choose to love without boundaries of favoritism. We can really experience togetherness. Because let me tell you how God loves you. Corey Asbury wrote that it's an overwhelming, never-ending, and at times feels like to us from our perspective, reckless. That's how God loves us. And in turn, we are to love people the same way. Because let me tell you what love does. Love finds a way for unity when the world can't find one. See, when the world is out there fighting and bickering over teams and skin color and, and, and social standing and on the list goes, mercy will triumph over judgment. Mercy will triumph. Love finds a way when there are differences that would keep us apart according to the world. God is love, and that love calls for togetherness and unity. Change, so we change what we see. We can change what we say. And we can choose to let love bring us together because mercy triumphs over judgment. And I have one last warning for you. This is from the book of Proverbs. And Solomon says this in Proverbs 28, 21. Playing favorites is always a bad thing. You can do great harm in seemingly harmless ways. Friends, favoritism is not a victimless act. It's not. It harms and it brings division. What God has for us is love and unity through togetherness. Now, let me tell you something. I've got just a few moments left here in my message today, and I just want to share with you. God has given us a great work to do here at this church. He's given us an incredible community of people to love. And there's a lot of brokenness out there. There's a lot of broken homes. There's a lot of broken relationships. There's a lot of broken lives. And we cannot be a people who live lives of favoritism. We must be a church who lives our lives with our arms wide open, ready to love. Because their labels are the same as our labels. That in time here, and I'm telling you, as soon as, as, soon as we have the funds, we're going to execute. But we're going to have a, a laundry facility here, a shower facility here for people that don't look like you. And they're going to get invited to church on Sunday morning. And they better come into a house where some people have done some work. Where we've said, you belong right here because you are a child of God. I need people of all creeds of all races, of all skin colors, of all backgrounds, to be welcomed in this house. And that's God's plan for us too. And I need us to search our hearts today. So let's get after it in this moment. That if there's any kind of favoritism or discrimination among us, within us, that we allow God to do the work to uproot that in our hearts and lives. Let's pray. Father, today I'm asking you to search us. That James is so clear today as he points to the power that we can experience of unity. The Lord, we've, we've seen it on, on display for us in the heavens between you and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Lord, some of us, we, we just simply don't 
know the power of unity, but I pray that in this church we would experience it, Lord. That the discrimination and the favoritism would be eliminated from this place. That it would be eliminated from our hearts. It would be eliminated from our speech. That it would be eliminated from our thoughts, our homes, our workplaces, our small groups, our places of community, our sports fields and arenas, and all the places, Lord, that we as Christ followers find ourselves. May we be a people who see as you see and say as you say. That we are willing to call out, you belong. That you are made in the image of God. And you belong. You belong before you believe. You belong before you get cleaned up. You belong. You belong. So Lord, help us to experience the power of unity. And as you convict us, help us to repent, to begin restructuring our lives and turning away from acts of discrimination and favoritism. May we, Lord, live our lives as you do with arms wide open, love abounding, and mercy that will triumph over judgment. As we continue to pray in this space and in this moment, there is somebody in this room. I'm not sure who it is, but this whole service has been for you. And, and it's for this moment. It's this moment right here where you, you have an opportunity to begin a relationship with God because you, you're here today and you find yourself far from him. You're here today and you're like, Aaron, I, I don't have a relationship with a God that loves me like that. Let alone a God that has a people that love like that. And today you're feeling conviction in your heart. What you're feeling is a drawing. What you're feeling is a call. It's an assurance. I need this. And if that's you and you're here today, you can begin a relationship with God. You just place your faith, your trust, your hope in Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life and he laid down his life as a sacrifice in place of us paying for our sins. Which, by the way, we couldn't. We would spend eternity in separation from God in a place called hell trying to pay for our sins. But Jesus came and he gave his life. He died on the cross and rose again in three days. And he did all that to demonstrate God's love for you. And so today, in response to that, you can be forgiven, made brand new. You can be redeemed, assigned purpose, you can make an eternal difference right here on this earth and have eternity in heaven. The Bible says you simply need to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And so I'm going to pray with you. I'll even give you the words to say because I know a lot of people, we don't talk to God because we don't know what to say. So this is your moment. Would you pray with me? And if you're making that confession today, if you're saying, Jesus, I need you. I want to be, be saved. Would you just slip your hand up and say, Aaron, that's me today. I'm making that decision. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. I knew there was somebody here today. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Christians, there are people saying yes to Jesus today. They've decided. So let's all pray together. Everybody pray out loud, especially those of you making that decision today. Say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sins. And make me brand new. Fill me with your spirit. 
and show me how to live for you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Man, heaven's having a party over you. Simple Church, celebrate with those who said yes to Jesus today. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. We hope it has given you hope and helped you know God a little bit more. The goal of this podcast is to reach beyond our walls and connect with people far from God. If you'd like to join us in doing that, there are several ways for you to get involved. First, you can pray for us as a church. Prayer is our first response and our greatest resource. Pray for opportunities that we can boldly step into, make a difference in our community and around the world as we proclaim the good news of Jesus. Second, share this episode on your social media accounts and directly with your friends. It's easy to do through whatever platform you're currently using to listen to this message. Just click share and follow the prompts. Finally, you can support the mission through your generosity. The best part about this is that it's also an act of worship where you express the priority of your love for God and others through your finances. Links to give are in the show notes or simply visit www.mysimple.church giving. We are so thankful you joined us today. Hope you'll consider joining the mission of our church in some way. Thank you again, and we'll see you at next week's episode.